0: we always tell everyone that we work with that contracts are for expectations. So very high level. What are you going to do for me? And then what am I going to do for you? And then what happens if we want to go our own way? So we always tell the physicians, there should be lots of detail on your schedule, lots of detail on your location, lots of detail on your call, because that's the expectation.
1: Hey, this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident, and I'm a financial planner, and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances, and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. This week, I talk with John Apino about important questions to ask when you're looking at employment agreements, especially for roles as an anesthesiologist. So if you've ever wondered what key considerations to keep in mind when you're looking at a potential new employment, you won't want to miss this episode. Hello and welcome to the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Harvey. Our guest for this episode is John Apino, founder of Contract Diagnostics. Contract Diagnostics is a company whose exclusive purpose is to provide physicians of all specialties with a detailed overview of a contract which they receive for prospective employment and to help those physicians understand the pros and cons of that contract and how competitive this offer may be for them. I first found John on the White Coat Investor blog a while back, where he's been a longtime advertiser and has been recommended by Dr. Jim Dolly, who runs White Coat Investor. John, thanks a lot for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having us. We appreciate it.
1: Yeah. So our audience of anesthesia pain physicians are really going to benefit, I know, from your insights about contract-specific considerations as they're looking for that first or maybe that second job opportunity. So uh, to start us off, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about your your firm
0: and the work that you do for physicians? So it's one of those things where I hate to say simple, not easy. Um, we We review physician contracts, period. We don't do anything else. We don't Outsource anything. We don't operate as a recruiting firm on the side. We don't try to sell disability or life insurance or manage investments. We just look at contracts. And we love working with the physicians that we work with that, you know, we get to tell them here's what they say. And then we can guide them and coach them on how to ask for things because it's not something that they're typically trained in. And so we, uh, we, we love working with everybody and we look at contracts all day long. So this is what we do. And uh, we've done it for maybe eight years or nine years now. We've done thousands and thousands of contracts, of course, and that uh, we really have a good time working here.
1: That's awesome. So why don't you take us through that process of how it how it usually works when a physician contacts you and they're looking for help? How, how do
0: you work with your clients? So it's very, I mean, everything's set up online and they basically send us the agreement and they say, you know, I, I, here's my questions. And we go through them and we, we go through the agreement in whole and we have multiple different ways that we go through it. We then hop on the phone with them and we send them documentation depending on which package they select. And we go over those documents. We answer all of their questions. We tell them what the contract says and maybe what it doesn't say or what it should say. And then we can kind of, depending on their frame, we can guide them on what the next step is. Sometimes their frame is, I, I grew up in this town, I want to be here forever. Sometimes their frame is, my spouse is training, and I'm only going to be here for another year or two. Or, you know, um, I'm single, and I'm going to try this location out. And if it doesn't work out, I'm going to move. So everyone's got their own unique individual story. And to look at you know a contract as a contract, but that story is what we kind of incorporate into our feedback to them as far as maybe based on that, here are some of the questions that you could ask. Or that you know some of the due diligence that you could do in the process.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, you do contract reviews for a lot of, I mean, all the different specialties. So you have a a robust database from which to compare these contracts. Is that right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that differentiate us, I mean, we're not a law firm, so we don't give that that type of advice. But we do have lots of financial data, and so we can go through and we can not only talk about what the contract says, and all the contracts are reviewed by an attorney, of course, but we can use that internal database to say based on this this is what the offer should look like, or what it could look like, or some of the questions that you could ask, or some of the things that we've seen in the area, or what the trends have been in the last few years. So there are certain specialties that have very interesting trends, and we can talk to that depending on who the physicians that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, can you give an example of maybe one of those specialty trends that has informed one of your analysis and
0: conversations? Absolutely. Recently, so I mean, there's a lot of examples, rheumatology being one of them. If we talk with employers across the country, they give us there's two there's always two needs that always pop up. One is rheumatology, the other is neurology. And so those specialties are in high demand. A lot of a lot of work in the ICU is another thing that we're seeing. But because of that, we're seeing salaries be very robust and packages be very uh, very generous in those two specialties. We're also seeing a lot of negotiating capital by those physicians if they have multiple offers, you know, just because, I mean, everybody needs those folks. We're also seeing really good trends right now in urology. If you look at urology as a specialty, overall, the the specialty is aging. A lot of physicians are older who are practicing urology. And so because of that, a lot of folks are having five-year plans in place to replace their urologists. And so we're seeing a lot of negotiating capital with urologists as well. And then obviously, you know, with, with your listenership, I mean anesthesia, we're seeing a lot of different deals in anesthesia, whether it's out you know an outpatient pain practice, whether it's a hospital employed uh, setup, whether it's a group with a hospital contract. We're seeing, with everything in healthcare. We're seeing consolidation, and so there's lots of considerations that should be taken into, depending on you know, you know what the individual physician's frame is and what type of opportunity they're looking at.
1: Yeah, interesting. So as far as the you know the dynamics of supply and demand, you know, you mentioned some of those specialties are more in demand, and maybe a rheumatologist is kind of in the driver's seat with regards to having negotiating leverage potentially. Where where do you see an anesthesiologist or a pain physician fall in that spectrum of very in demand? You're in the power seat a little bit, or the other end of the spectrum where you kind of got to take what you're given. W- where do you see them fall, or does it depend on region? Probably
0: very much so. All physicians are in high demand right now, and I think everybody listening has probably seen the supply and demand curves for physicians. If you look at retirement patterns of you know new quote new physicians versus you know the older age physicians, people don't want to work until they're 80 years old anymore. You know, people don't want to do 100-hour weeks. You look at med school enrollments and graduating and, you know, and fellowship and residency programs and how many they're graduating that are females. And it's over 50% now that yields to more time off, more part-time work because that's just what their frame tends to be a lot of times. And so because of those things, the supply and demand curves are dramatically shifting for every physician out there. I just saw last night a, a blurb on the – I think it, I don't know if it was the local news or if it was the national news on physician burnout. And how many physicians are burning out? And that's causing more, more slowing down earlier in career or early retirements. So because of that, all physicians, I feel, are in a good spot. Now, like you said, does it matter if you're going to San Diego or if you're coming to rural Iowa? Of course it does. Does it matter if they've got you know no anesthesia or one anesthesia or if it's a very powerful private anesthesia group in the city and the anesthesia group basically runs the region and they do very well when they're partner. They take a lot of time off when they're partner, but the new folks, they don't get that good at deals. And it's okay if you stick around for a little while. But if your frame again is a couple of years and moving on, or if they don't offer partnership or if something changes with that opportunity, it just varies. So we see anesthesia deals from over 600,000 guaranteed income to25, 250 on the low end. I mean, sometimes it's because a physician has better training or they're a better negotiator, but sometimes it's just re- reliant on the opportunity and what the physician wants out of their career.
1: Yeah. So if you're talking like 225, 250, what kinds of cases do you see where that low end is manifest?
0: We'll see, you know, sometimes academic practices, but we're seeing a lot of hybrid academics where they may appear as our academics because, you know, it's with an academic institution, but you're still a producer, if you will. You're still doing 95% clinical and you have RVU bonuses. And so we don't really even though a physician will tell us that it's academic and that's the reason for the lower compensation, I don't always buy that. And you know, we also see those highfalutin private groups where they know that they've got a good thing going and they take they make good money when they're partners and they take a lot of time off. And they feel relatively, you know, they've kind of built their their moat, if you will. And they feel they're kind of, you know, you know, impervious to any outside influence. And so a lot of times they say, look, you know, maybe it's not an In a major metro, it's in a mid-major, you know, a town of, you know, 200,000 to a million or a million five. And they've got good power, good strangle on the community, if you will, in a respectful way, of course, meaning as far as providing anesthesia services. And, you know, they've got 10 applicants for the one role and the one role because some guy's retiring after working there for 20 years. So we sometimes see less financial offer, less financial you know, uh, viability in those markets, at least for the first couple of years until they become partner.
1: Yeah. And in that context, I think it might be helpful for our listeners to sort of break down a couple of the sort of prototypical prospective employers and understand how is the contract, how is the negotiating process going to differ between, say, an academic center versus a big, um, you know, anesthesia management company versus maybe a smaller
0: yeah, group? Great question. So again, depending on their frame, they may say this is our contract, period. Whether that's the anesthesia group with a good thing going that they know they don't have to negotiate or modify anything and everyone, the other twenty or forty physicians have signed the same thing. Or the academic group where you know it's more like a letter, you know, four pages, it's not really formal, it's a lot of links to policies and, and those kind of things. All those things, of course, should still get reviewed by somebody. Are they more of a here's what you should negotiate? Maybe not. Maybe it's more of a here's what's not said, here's what you should clarify. Here are the policies that I would want to read. Here are some questions that we have, because if you want to leave, maybe there is no provision for termination. Maybe that references bonuses, but we don't know how they're paid or when they're paid or what the metrics are. Maybe it references you know, future compensation, but we don't know what those are. If it's partnership, we have a, a Q&A that we send out here where it lists, here are some really good questions you could ask around partnership. Again, maybe it's not a negotiation. It's more of a clarification. And those can be two very different things, which are things that we do all the time here. You know, Just because maybe a contract is not negotiable doesn't mean that it shouldn't be looked at and doesn't mean that you still don't have good due diligence to do when it comes to finding out if that's the right opportunity for you. Now, in, a, in the setting where it's more of a highly compensated pay salary, more of a hospital setting, and they need you more than you need them, those become very open for negotiation. So do we want to negotiate what the bonus looks like? Do we want to negotiate base salary or assigning bonuses or relocation amounts or student loans or retention bonuses or... CME amounts or flexibility as far as your schedule goes. Non-competes, obviously. There's lots and lots of different ways that contracts in general can be negotiated. But you know, sometimes it's more of a clarification. Sometimes it's a straight-up negotiation. It just depends all on the on the situation and the frame.
1: So I was at the ASA conference a few weeks ago in October, and I I went to this um, session where there were a handful of physicians from some of the big uh, private practice groups, and one of the physicians said, essentially, intimated. If you come in here and you're, you're making demands about salary or bonus, you know, there's a bunch of people all in line right behind you. And we don't need to flex because there's there's demand for this role. And your ability to move us on this key factor is you, you don't have any leverage. He was very blunt about that. Would you, would you say that that's your experience? In those larger groups? Sometimes.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, again, does it mean that if it says you get a base salary and a bonus, does it mean that we want to negotiate those things? Or does it mean that we just want clarification? So, you know, you know is, is that kind of group with that type of physician likely to change? No, absolutely not. Does it mean that the contract has all the details in it that, we, that you would want to know if for some reason things didn't work out or if for some reason you're trying to plan financially? So there's no details around the bonus. Maybe there's some questions that we can ask around what it has been historically and when it's paid out and how it's taxed and how it's paid if you don't work there anymore due to a you know, termination or a disability or death. And so just because maybe there's no wiggle room in it doesn't mean that we can't provide or somebody else can't provide some really good clarifying questions to ask in a situation like that. Sometimes we'll have physicians, they'll call us back and they'll say, you know, hey, we asked a lot of those questions and, you know, I was told the answer is no, no, no. Um, And and again, that's fine, right? As as long Asking the question sometimes makes us aware and makes us confident that other people don't have other situations, right? And sometimes if we don't ask, and if if they don't tell us, look, everyone gets paid the same here, we don't change it for new people. Okay, wonderful. Now we know that there's no discrimination as far as new starts, whether you're you know, whether it's a, a male or a female or whether it's a foreign trained or a, 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 an American trained or whether it's a an established physician with years of experience or a new grad out of training. You know, sometimes they pay for for pain fellowships or cardiac fellowships. Sometimes they don't. And so by having even if they don't you know, negotiate by having the right questions to ask, at least we can feel confident that other people have the similar offer. And there's no differences between you and the colleague you're working next to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I I really like this idea that you're presenting of kind of just getting clarity on things that aren't obvious. And especially when it comes to comp, you know, physician comp is very complex, potentially. And um, you bringing clarity to what does this contract actually mean as far as the bottom line, as far as the, the number that's going to be in your checking account every month or every year, that can be a really valuable service in itself. Can you talk a little bit about what it looks like for you to work with a physician to maybe interpret or untangle? What does it mean if we have RVUs or a, a percent of reimbursement collections or, or something like that? And, and how does that translate into you empowering a physician to, to be able to make an informed decision?
0: So again, they're all different. You know, some have, like you said, some have RVUs, some have collections, some have salaries. Yeah,
1: let's take maybe an RVU example. If, if, you, if we have a physician looking at RVUs and trying to benchmark, oh, they, they're going to pay me 350 k and they, they're setting a 7500 uh, RVU target. You know, how do I know if that's a good or bad
0: deal? Yeah, so I, I love being able to have the right clarifying questions. So if you're not the only person there, what do the others do in terms of numbers? I love to ask what expectations are. So what are the employer's expectations of you in the first and the second and the third year? If 7,000 is the goal, if that's the goal, would me hitting 7,000 then meet your expectations? Or would that be the the minimum expectation? Or would I be exceeding? I love to get reports and ask what kind of monthly reports are provided so so the physician knows how he or she is trending towards hitting that particular number. We always tell you guys to find out how they set their metrics. So do they just come up with it internally? They peg it to a certain standard, MGMA, AMGMA, Sullivan-Cotter, a third-party analysis, what they've done in the past. We were negotiating with the neonatology group a while back, and we were told that all physicians are paid the same structure. We asked when the last time they hired was. They said nine years ago, right? So so sometimes you know, having those questions to be asked to see, okay, you paid everyone the same, but you haven't changed it. This might be a really good time to do so. You know i think can can play as well but you know if it's an RVU model we love to see what the expectations are we love to know what the other people are doing we love to know what kind of reports that they'll be getting uh, we love to know if it's prorated for termination so if you if you work a half of a year but you exceed the half of the production bonus is it is it binary on if you cross that 7000 threshold or not or is it, hey, if you only work a half a year, we, we, we pro-rate to 3500 Females who take maternity leave, what happens if you take maternity leave and you're out for three months not producing RVUs? Then what happens to the structure? Those are all questions to understand when you're working under a, an incentive compensation model that has to do with RVUs.
1: Makes sense. And then, you know, there's obviously, aside from sort of the big numbers of what what's the comp going to look like, there's all the ancillary benefits that are an important part of the total picture. Um, can you maybe touch on a couple of the important... Uh, you know, perks of uh, a physician contract and and how you help benchmark those versus other contracts and see if there's ways to improve potentially those offerings.
0: So it, yeah, absolutely. so I mean benefits can be a big part of it. We'll see some independent contractor deals with anesthesia. you know, so obviously there's no benefits. So if there's no benefits and you're out of pocket thirty thousand a year, you know or more or less, depending on what you need to come up with 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 extra taxes that the employer's not paying or covering your own health insurance or, or, or liability insurance, um, CME dollars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, understanding how that might be a really good benefit to you um, and maybe how that's not a good thing. If you're an employed uh, physician, then, yeah, what's the vacation? What are the policies? And of course, all the details that someone who listens to your podcast, of course, would be very astute to, to make sure that they manage with, you know, if they have life insurance or disability insurance and what those amounts are. And of course, they're not portable. So if it's not portable, you know, and you leave, now you've got to go buy a new policy. Well, now you're older, maybe with some other, you know, health issues. So maybe those policies are more expensive when you go to buy them for your next position. Knowing all of those, those ancillary things, and then, um, one of the things that we always tell physicians that they really need to know is not only that they have the benefits and what they are and clarifying on what they are, but also knowing when they start. So if your 401k doesn't start for a year, that's important that you know. So you can plan around that. If your medical insurance doesn't start for 60 days after your first day of employment, that's important because you may have COBRA insurance to buy from your prior employment. And that could cost you a 1000 or 2000 a month. So planning financially for those transition costs could be one of the really important things around the benefits, and of course, you know, we see very robust benefit plans that can add up to hundreds of thousands of dollars with student loans and and uh, moving expenses and you know and, uh, and and the medical and all the other types of insurances. You can see very very robust plans if that's in fact what the employers offer.
1: I want to talk for a minute about a non-competition, a non-compete clause, and because you know that's something that a physician is going to want to know. If I go somewhere, it doesn't work out. What are the terms of termination, and then where can I work, or what is the acceptable radius within which I can practice? And does it mean I have to move two states away in order to be able to continue doing what I'm doing? Uh, what What are you seeing out there as far as um, what's an acceptable, maybe standard-ish? And again, I understand there's some variability here. But as far as a fair non-compete radius in, in the anesthesia world, what, what should um, our listeners be looking for?
0: It depends so much on, I think, the type of practice. You know, a lot of times, again, if we take that very highly successful private practice in a setting that they, they have, they, they kind of own the market, if you will. Maybe having a non-compete in that situation is maybe not of as big of a deal because maybe there's no chance that you can compete with them. You know, it's it's not like a radius. You know, maybe it just says that you we have we have exclusive contracts to provide anesthesia services at these two hospitals or five hospitals, and you cannot take those contracts. Which makes sense. Doesn't mean that you can't open up your own practice, but would you want to knowing that they own all the They're the ones in town that provide the service. You know, sometimes it's, it's, again, all that stuff is important that you understand, but sometimes it's almost a non-issue because if it doesn't work out, you must have to move because there is nowhere else that you can work, right? Depending on the exclusive nature of the anesthesia contracts. You know, again, if it's like a pain practice, maybe it's like, you know, you have a mile radius for a defined amount of time, one year, 10 miles from the practice locations. Sometimes it's from one location. Sometimes it's from every location. So it's important that the physician knows how that's structured. Because if it's from every location and they've got five locations, it might be more catastrophic than if it's just from the one location that the physician's working. And as the employer maybe adds accounts or adds locations, that could grow. That's, of course, outside the physician's control. If they sign a contract and there's one location, so it's, they say, 10 miles from, from the, the clinic that they work on, and then over the next five years, which they are they work there, the employer expands to 10 more offices. Now, if you didn't know how it was structured when you started, now it's from every single office. Again, there's all those kind of nuances where we'll see like in a rural setting, we'll see 50 miles. You know, one year for 50 miles, you can't work, which is fine. You're going to move away. Other times we'll see you you can work wherever you want to. You just can't compete with the accounts that we have contracts with, which makes sense. They're exclusive contracts. So if and when those contracts comes up, you can't file a proposal with the hospital you have to steer clear. Otherwise, maybe they can work wherever they want to. Sometimes we'll see damages in there if the physician breaches them. Sometimes we'll see, you know, they're they're more like a it's, it's a mile radius. Sometimes we'll see like more non-interferences. So it doesn't say you can't work. It says you can't interfere with us. But maybe interfering means taking their accounts and maybe taking their accounts means working because there's no other places to work if you provide inpatient anesthesia services. So, you know, everything's different and unique. And but what we definitely see them Sometimes that's one of those negotiating points, like you mentioned earlier. And sometimes it's like, look, this is what we have here. We don't change it. And sometimes with the larger groups, they don't budge on the non-competes. But maybe they don't budge on the radius or, or having it in there or not. But maybe they would budge on how it's forgiven. Or primary location versus every location. Or another nuance to the non-compete that maybe it's not, it's not a, you know, is it binary? Is it there? Is it not? Maybe it is going to be there, period. They don't negotiate it. But maybe there's other factors on it that the physician could clarify and potentially negotiate as far as changing and maybe providing a little bit more freedom for himself or herself if and when the relationship doesn't work out long term.
1: Right. With regards to landmines, things to definitely watch out for, are there any rules of thumb as far as a non-starter in a contract? If you, if you see this or if you don't see this, you absolutely need to address that before proceeding.
0: So ah, great question. Of course, I'm gonna say it depends on the physician's situation. But a lot of times I would say if there's not like a if there's not clear termination provisions, that can be an issue. If a physician does not know how he or she can quit or move on, if they're unhappy, that can be a, a major issue. If there's not clear definition around compensation. So if it's a salary, okay. If there's a you know what how does the salary change. But if there's, a, if there's a bonus provision, sometimes bonuses are discretionary. I don't know that they'll change that. And that's not a landmine, but it does, again, it provides a lot of clarifying questions to us. And again, the physician's perspective may have unique things that I would consider a landmine versus somebody else's. So if you've got a spouse working in the area, maybe the non-compete becomes more of a binary, horrible idea to sign um, versus not having good clarity around something how the malpractice insurance is paid or how tail is covered is one of those very important things. You know, how a bonus is paid on termination is one of those very important things. We've taken far too many calls from physicians who feel like they've been wronged at the end of a relationship and I think sometimes that does happen. But I think more often it they haven't been wronged, they just didn't understand the termination provisions and how dollars or bonuses were paid or repaid. And so maybe it's not that they were misled by the organization, they just didn't understand the policies or they didn't ask the right questions. And so we take calls more often than we would think around people who feel that they've been ripped off or wronged by their former employer, which may be the case, but sometimes they just didn't understand something. So again, having good granular clarity around those things, I think are very important. We always tell everyone that we work with that contracts are for expectations. So very high level, what are you going to do for me? And then what am I going to do for you? And then what happens if we want to go our own way or we want to end our relationship? And so if you look at those three things, termination, of course, is what if we want to end our relationship? So lots of details and understanding everything in there. And then the what am I going to do for you? Well, you're going to give them your time and your expert opinion. So we always tell the physicians there should be lots of detail on your schedule, lots of detail on your location, lots of detail on your call, because that's the expectation. And I think it's fair to have those in the contract. And then what are they going to do for you? Of course, that's compensation. And we've covered that as far as having a lot of detail around base salary and bonuses and, and everything else and then how those things are paid if, if the relationship goes awry. Uh,
1: I want to talk for a second about... So you mentioned MGMA and, and other sort of benchmarking organizations and studies. To what extent do you use those to to evaluate how competitive a contract is? Or do you have a sufficient volume
0: of your own work? So we use both. You know, I think... A lot of employers say we use MGMA. So it's important that we're aware of that data and what it looks like and how it's changed. And we've got lots of data. So we can go back and look at trends over time and be a little predictive uh, based on what we know about a particular market or a specialty and what the trends have been in the last few years. But of course, with any data set like that, it's got a little bias, right? Because you know, some people take surveys, some people don't. So you've got, you know, you've got the people, you know, I mean, the the cardiologist who's earning a million five maybe isn't in taking surveys on how much he earns, you know. But, you know, then, you know, some of the data with, uh, we've got a lot of, we've got more part-time work right now, more independent contractor work since some of the tax laws have changed over the years. And so because of that, that skews the data a little bit. It doesn't make the data irrelevant. I think it's still the gold standard and one of the best out there to evaluate and when we talk to employers, a lot of the things that they tell us is that's what they use for setting and pegging compensation. So it's very important to understand that. no. But our internal data is raw. It's robust. It's blinded. But we know if you're in anesthesia working in a certain metro area, here's what the starting salaries look like. Here's what the vacation time looks like. Here's what the CME dollars look like or, or signing bonuses. And so we can say, you know, if a physician has just one offer and he or she can't compare five other offers that they have in a given metro area, we might be able to do so with our data. to say, here's what other people are paying in the area. So they can make an informed decision on is the equation, right? The time for money equation. Uh, worth it that doesn't make sense based on the potential future with the organization
1: uh and in that context maybe we can close with just one or two case studies where we do a uh, you can do a a mini recap of one of the anesthesia or, or even other physicians whom you have helped analyze a contract and maybe some some helpful things that you brought to bear in that situation
0: yeah so i so one story that comes to mind this time every single year and this happened i think it was two years ago it was anesthesia. I mean, and this is, but this would be this. I think you could say this would be similar for anybody, but this happened to be an anesthesia physician. And she was working with a smaller group. I want to say three physicians, maybe, maybe two or three or four, something like that smaller. We had worked with her and we said, look, you know, it, it just says you'll be paid a certain salary and you'll work as they need. There was no detail on any additional compensation for additional hours or how many hours or what call looked like, it was just kind of, you know, high level, right? You'll work for us, and we'll pay you some money. And we told her, this is really important that you have this documented, because I don't know if, if they're paying you, let's just say it was 300, if they're paying you 300 for a 40 hour week or an 80 hour week. So I don't know how I feel about it. 300 might be very good if it's three days a week, it might be not very good if you're working seven days a week every day. And so you know, we never heard from her. And uh, we hear from her a year, or I we we heard from her uh, two years ago around this time, around um, like mid-January, I think it was. And I got an email from her and it said, it said, uh, hey guys, I just came off the Christmas to New Year's week. So seven days, I worked 108 and a half hours. And she said, I'm not happy. I think she used different language, of course, but she said, I'm not happy. And she said, um, they're telling me they're not going to pay me anymore. Is this Okay. And so we talked with her and we said, did you get the, the, the schedule clarified? And she said, no, it says I'll work whenever they want me to. And we said, then you don't, you know, we don't see a whole lot of wiggle room for you to demand or request additional money. So she said, everyone else was at home with their, with their, their families. And here I am, my first Christmas, you know, out of training where I'm not a resident. And here I am basically living at the hospital, doing everything for the, all four people by myself, And I don't do anymore. So that's a, that's a situation that, you know, and, and again, she happened to be anesthesia. And of course, you know, anesthesia, when you're on service, you're on service, so it can be busy. And, uh, you know, and that's just what her Christmas to New Year's week was like. And I think of that every time that we come around this time of year.
1: And the pain of the situation obviously isn't as much the fact that she had to work Christmas because everybody does sometimes, but that she was shocked and appalled <laughs> at the conditions and didn't see it coming because uh, exactly. she didn't and get and, the clarity and, up front. And
0: sometimes people will say, look, John, they're, they're newly trained. They say, maybe I've got a lot of loans and I want to work additional and I want to take that extra weekend to call because it's good money and I'm okay. But again, if there's no extra compensation and you're trading time for money, you know I don't think that she got an extra week off. I don't think that she had a break the next week. I don't think that they gave her any That was just how it worked. And why could they do it? Because they were the boss, and she was not. So that's a specifics you know, that we had to do with uh, with anesthesia. You know, we always hear of physicians, whether it's anesthesia or not, where they have collection-based structures. And so let's say you have a salary and you get paid a, a dollar based on, or you get paid a percent based on the collections that come in for your work. And, you know, if you're not getting reports and you don't know what the collections are, and you stop working there, say you know today, but patients pay you or pay insurance companies pay them in a month. You know you think that you've worked really hard and you'll get that compensation, but you don't. And so we oftentimes see physicians with collection bonuses, which is, is common in anesthesia, and we will see them not receive dollars that they've rightfully earned and worked hard for, and they've traded their their time and their expert opinion for, but they wouldn't receive them because the contract wasn't set up to receive the um, eligible dollars based on if and when they came in based on the termination.
1: Yeah, no kidding. And going into those situations with eyes wide open and understanding the implications of this contract language obviously sets you way ahead of the curve as far as being
0: able to be informed. Yeah, and that's what it's all about. Some people will call and they'll say, hey, you know, I got this contract. And, you know, I mean, they said everyone signs the same thing and they said, don't even try to negotiate it and don't waste your money on having it reviewed you know, they'll say, do I need to get it reviewed? And, you know, of course you have a biased opinion, but we say, yes. And we we say, find someone, if you don't want to work with us, that's okay. Find someone, but just have it reviewed by somebody who you feel does a good job. And that would be somebody who does more than a couple per year or somebody who and the other thing is is a lot of local quote law firms, you know, they're not familiar with the RVU model. They're not familiar with compensation trends. They have financial disclosures to have with the employer because there may be conflicts if they've taken money from the employer to do, you know, to write contracts or to negotiate deals or to talk about their hospital contracts or to provide any guidance to them. way. They, they may have a conflict with the employer. So, you know, that's one of those things that make, you know, a company like ours maybe a little bit more uh, advantageous, but at the end of the day, we tell everybody who calls or everyone that we that hears us on the podcast, just have it reviewed by somebody, even if it's a couple hundred bucks, provide this level of information to you, even if it's not negotiable, so there are no surprises. I think, uh, Justin, you've probably seen the data where it says, 56% of physicians do not stick around after their first the first term of their contract, you're more than likely to leave and find a new position. And that can be painful because you may have to buy tail, you may lose out on bonuses, you may have to uh, non-compete. Maybe that partnership track that you were hoping on and the big dollars, the lots of vacation time doesn't pan out, right? And so it's important that you have these things understood up front. And I feel the data is skewed because I think if you pull people who had their contracts reviewed by somebody, I think that the data would be much less because the expectations would hopefully be more clear so there would be less surprises and if there's less surprises then I would assume that people would leave less often
1: right absolutely and that's why I'm really I love the work that you guys do and and I feel the same about the work that I do is that it's such a high value you know if you're going to be signing a contract that is a 300000 400000 or more dollar decision, does it not make sense to spend a couple hundred dollars or maybe up to $1,000 or whatever the price point is to, to have it reviewed by a professional to make sure that it's a good deal, the right thing to make sure the compensation is structured appropriately and that you've asked these clarifying questions up front? Does that not make sense? It absolutely does. I'm a huge proponent of services like yours, John, and I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing uh, that as we're sort of side by side here in different ways, trying to you know equip physicians with this valuable information.
0: Absolutely. Well, we have a, you know, we have so much fun doing what we do here. And um, I think people think that we've lost our minds because we think this is fun looking at papers and contracts and, you know, and all that stuff every day, all day. But we would do it sometimes 20 hours a day in the busy season if we didn't love it. You know, we wouldn't work almost every Saturday between January and May if we didn't love it. We always encourage anybody to call us and ask us any questions. We, you, know, we don't, you know, we do consults. We don't charge people for those. Um, if they have questions, they want to run by us, so, or you know, everything's flat price, so you don't have some hourly rate that you're going to not know what you pay up front, and we don't treat them like rich doctors, quote unquote, you know, so we can charge them, you know, enormous fees and stuff. So we tell people just to have everything looked at by somebody. We have a fun time doing it here. If you want to, you know, work with us, you can hit our website or give a, or, or, or contact you, and you can pass them over whatever's best. But yeah, we have a good time doing what we do here, and um, I see a big value in, uh, in in working with these folks, but also in. And you helping them and guiding them in the way that you do as
1: well. Yeah, that's great. And you know, to be able to say that you do something that you love, that you really help and impact people, and uh, that it gets you out of bed every morning—that's a that's a really awesome thing to be able to say. So I'm glad that we're both in that boat, John.
0: Yeah, we love those emails when they come in and they say they say, "Hey, based on your coaching or your recommendation, I was able to talk to them and they gave me this, and they you know, or I or thank goodness I used you two years ago because you know I those um I mean. it's like a physician you know you 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 see uh, you see we don't do of course as intricate work as they we don't people don't rely on us for life and death decisions Um, but you know when someone when you see that patient and every once in a while you have a patient that's so grateful and it means the world to you it's kind of the same for what we do and i I would assume the same as you
1: yeah absolutely well john apino thank you very much for joining us today really appreciate your perspectives
0: yeah we appreciate you having us
1: hey justin here This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning, where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiosuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.